Turn, if you would, to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. Last week, we made it through two and a half verses. At that rate, we will not finish the book of Romans. (laughs) I guess we would eventually. As we have said repeatedly, chapter 12 begins the application half of the book of Romans. It's not really half, but we'll pretend that it's half. We began with verse 1 and 2 about three weeks ago, where we talked about presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, not being conformed to the way this world does things, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We then dealt with not thinking more highly of ourselves, and we dealt with spiritual gifts, the reality that we need something from God, the gifts, and we need something from each other because we are a body and we're all working together. So last week we hit verse 9. Verse 9 to the end of the chapter is a series of commands, just one after the other. They oftentimes come in pairs. Don't do this, do this, and they're paired together. And we started our way down it, and we had a very long introduction last week about why God would give us such a list. We discussed the fact that he doesn't give it to us in order that we can do it to merit our salvation. If you believe that, you didn't understand chapters 1 to 8 of the book of Romans. He didn't give it to us as a way to keep saved. We are kept saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ. He didn't give it to us as a club to beat our neighbors with. And we really like that one. We read lists like this and we go, you know, you failed miserably on number 14. In fact, number 12, you're not real good on either. I'm going to whack you over the head. We love doing that. He gave this to us so that we would understand what it meant to be conformed to the image of his son. You can look at how all of this puts, is, is put together. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does it mean to be transformed? Look at this list. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? Look at this list. What does it mean to not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit? Look at this list. Now, can lists like this be turned into legalistic, I'm going to do it and I don't care what it means internally, it's all external? Of course it can. Everything in the Christian life can be abused. When we separate, when we separate the Spirit from guiding our lives. But at the end of the day, I need to know what that hand is supposed to do. And the scripture tells us what that hand is supposed to do, what this tongue is supposed to do, how I'm supposed to live my life. And that is the practical side of it. And so we're going to continue our way down the list. We'll start where we uh, started last week. Since we didn't get very far, it won't slow us down very much. Verse 9, let love be genuine. We discussed the fact that some commentators want to uh, consider all everything that follows under the heading of showing genuine love. And I'm not really going to argue with that because each of these are how we show love to our neighbors, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to our enemies, 
to anyone that we come in contact with. More on that to, to follow. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. And if I'm not mistaken, we made it halfway through verse 11. So we'll pick it up with do not be slothful in zeal. We talked about being slothful and what that means, the deadly sin of sloth, basically being lazy. Being fervent in spirit, you are to be enthused with the spiritual life. You see, the natural tendency is to get enthusiastic about physical things. You know, we watch the Olympics. I told you that since the Olympics are on, I have to mention it every week. Next week, I will not mention it because <laughs> it'll be over. We get enthusiastic about these physical events. And you know what? That's fine. But we are supposed to be enthusiastic about the things of the Spirit. What does God want me to do? Which brings us to the next one, which is serve the Lord. It's a simple command. You would think it would be a piece of cake. Serve the Lord. We know what the words mean. Lord, that's God. Jesus Christ is our Lord. That should be simple, right? Except for the fact that sometimes we fall into a trap of thinking someone else is the Lord of our life. Who would that be? Pull out your mirror and look in it. Serve the Lord means that we acknowledge that we do have a Lord. As Lord, he has the right to tell us what to do. As servants, we have an obligation to do that which he asks us to do. Very simple. Until he asks us to do something we don't want to do. And then we think of some reason why it's a bad idea right now. I've mentioned here and here before the idea of being a servant. Uh, I think it's Foster in his book on the spiritual disciplines talks about we talk about being a servant as long as I get to be in control while I'm the servant. You know, I'm willing to go serve at some group, some homeless shelters, some organization, as long as I get to call the shots. But that's not being a servant. A servant, by definition, doesn't call the shots. But that kind of gets in the way of our 21st century American mentality that I'm supposed to be in charge of my own life, my own destiny, and I get to decide what to do. So, how do we serve God. It's kind of interesting. It sounds so simple, yet we make it so complicated when really it should be so simple. What does Jesus say? If you've done it unto the least of them, you have done it unto me. Don't you remember the story that he tells? You know, the people show up at the judgment. You didn't feed me. You didn't visit me when I was in prison. You didn't give me water when I was thirsty. You didn't give me clothes when I was naked. Get out of here. And the people respond, When did I see you, Jesus, 
naked and not clothe you? When did I see you hungry and not feed you? When did I do these things? When you didn't do them to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. But then I've also been fascinated at the other side of it. Come on, he says to one group. You did see me naked and feed me. You did see me hungry and feed me. You did see me thirsty. And they, they gave the interesting response. I don't remember seeing you. And he gives the same response. When you saw, when you gave, when you tended to those in need, you were serving me. You see, we think of serving God as coming to this property and doing something. And that's true, okay? That is serving God. But serving God is serving those who are in need. Who are those in need? Trust me, God will bring them to you. They'll just show up. Yeah, but I don't want those. Those are bad relatives. Those are dirty people. Those are not my kind of people. Exactly. Serve the Lord means means that God gets to call the shots. God gets to tell us where we serve, when we serve, and how we serve. We don't like that at all. We'd better go to the next verse. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. You do know, right, that these verse numbers that we see in our Bibles are not in the original, right? Okay? The, the, the people who put those numbers in kind of group things together, but they don't have to be there. The numbers are there so that we can have a discussion about the Scripture, you know, so I don't have to say somewhere about the middle of chapter, wait, the chapter wasn't there either. It was a letter, and here it is, and I'm telling you, the original people who came up with these numbers, where to look so we can have the discussion. But it is interesting, the grouping that we see at times. What does it say? Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Let's start at the middle and work our way out. Okay? What is tribulation? Come on, this is easy. Pardon? Tough times. We oftentimes think of tribulation as uh, being persecuted for your faith, and that would certainly be tough times. But basically it's as you go through life, you're going to run into situations that are hard. Shall we have a show of hands? We're all old enough to know that. We're all old enough to know that you're going to get into situations that are hard. How do we respond? How do we respond when things are hard. Hmm? You're being optimistic. And you're reading the next word. Her answer was, we pray. 
But that's not how most of us respond. Or if we do respond in prayer, it's God, why? With about that tone. God, why are you allowing this in my life? Did you see all the good things that I did last week? Did you see that person that I served? Now, why are the bad things still here? Tell them to go away. That's what we want from God. We want the bad things to go away. We want the tribulation. Why? Because we think that somehow, somehow it's showing that God is not in control. If God was in control, my life would be easy. My life would be perfect. Piece of cake, easy street. It's not there's something wrong with God. And we complain and we scream and we shout and we act like God's not doing his job. I've quoted this before because I like it so much. C.S. Lewis in his essay, God in the Dock, says, the dock in an English courtroom is where the accused stands. And he said, in ancient times, that is anything before the 1800s, Humanity stood in the dock, and God was the judge. But starting somewhere in the 20th century, we put God in the dock. And if God measures up to our standards, we'll let him be God. If God does what we want him to do, if he performs the things we think he ought to perform, if he gives us the life we think we deserve, then we'll judge him okay. And that's what happens when tribulation comes. We begin to moan, complain, act like God's not doing his job. What are we supposed to do? Number one, be patient. That's a silly thing to do. That doesn't cure the problem. That doesn't fix the problem. What being patient in tribulation does is it allows us to wait and trust in God to deal with the situation. You know, elsewhere in the book of Romans, it talks about rejoicing in tribulation. That's hard. Here, all it's requiring of you is being patient. That's a hard thing for us to do. How many of you have perfected patience? Don't raise your hand. You're lying. (laughs) Not really. There are people who you look at them and you realize that they have pain and suffering in their life and they are patient. I'm often not one of those people, okay? I'm the one who gives the prayer, God, give me patience and give it to me now. Be patient in tribulation, in suffering, and in difficult times. Rejoice in hope. What is it that tribulation does to us, unfortunately, too often? That is, it chops the feet out of our hope. What is hope? We've had this discussion before. Faith, hope, and love. We talk about the three of them together. Sometimes we view hope as just wishful thinking. 
I hope that I have a good lunch. I hope there's not a lot of traffic on the way home. I hope that the American team wins such and such a medal. See, I did it again. It's just kind of, I hope, I wish these good things happened to me. Biblically, that's not what hope is. Hope is acknowledging that God has made promises and the God that made those promises is going to keep those promises. And therefore, I have hope for the future. Even though I may be in the midst of tribulation now, I rejoice in the hope that God has promised me certain things. What are those things? That's where we get into trouble, though. Has he promised you that life will be easy in the here and now? Read the scripture. Look at the people. Read, you know, start in the beginning with Adam and Eve and work your way through the apostles at the end. Read all of that and see how many of them had peace and calm in the here and now. There's probably a few of them. There are. But there were more that had difficulties, tribulations, persecutions. But they never gave up the hope that God would do what God said he was going to do. So we rejoice in hope. That phrase actually works either way. We rejoice because of our hope, and we have hope that leads us to rejoice. Huh. I have trouble with that one many days. I don't know if I commented on it last week. We have a tendency to work our way down this list. We find a few that we really like, and we clamp onto them because they're the ones that we happen to be doing. And we find a few that we can't stand, and so we ignore those, or we use them as a club against other people. They're all here for our instruction, our correction, our training in righteousness. All of this is given to us. And as we read the list, there's going to be some of them that we go, I have trouble with that one. And that's okay. Tell God you have trouble with that one. And let God instruct you on what it means to rejoice in your hope, to be patient in tribulation, which leads to the third of the verse, which is be constant in prayer. That's an interesting word, constant. We see elsewhere the phrase, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Does that mean that I go to the monastery and I sit there and I pray all day long continually? Is that what that means? I mean, let's face it. Sometimes I have to think about other things. Sometimes. At work, they pay me. Dealing with issues around the house, I've got to deal with. I've got to think about certain things. What does it mean to be constant in prayer it means that all of these things whatever else it is that i'm dealing with in my life at this particular point in time all of these things are surrounded in prayer god what about this 
God, what about that? What do you think, God? God, what about this? Thank you, God, for that. Thank you for that. Being constant in prayer means that we have God in our minds at all times and the conversation with God is ever present, if not always verbally expressed. Sometimes I do think about other things. I have to. But God needs to be drawn into those conversations. What does that do? It allows me to rejoice in hope. It gives me the patience in tribulation because I can acknowledge the fact that God is in control even when I cannot understand what God is doing and why he is doing it. We rejoice in our hope. We are patient in tribulation and we are constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Who are the saints? It's a football team, isn't it? Don't contribute to them. Ready? We're the saints. Okay? We are the saints. There's not a group of people who, because of their enhanced holiness, are recognized by the church as being saints. Not to take anything away from that group of people. The saints are all of us. We are to contribute to the needs of the saints. What needs do the saints have? Bunches. You name it, somebody needs it. You ready for this? This is going to hurt, okay? In certain things, money, time, energy, wisdom, God has given you more than you need to meet your own immediate needs. Why did he give that to you? Why did he give you that excess of what you need to meet your immediate needs? Did he give you that excess so that you could lord it over other people? Did he give you that excess so that you could satisfy not just your needs, but your excessive wants? Why did he do that? I'll tell you why he did it. So you can meet the needs of someone else. <gasps> Time, money, energy, wisdom, learning, you name it. You've got it. They need it. You give it. Remember the discussion two weeks ago about us being the body of Christ? We talked about it in the context of spiritual gifts, and that's good. That's what the passage was really about. But the body of Christ is set up in such a way that if I've got $10 more than I need, and there's a brother or sister who has $10 less than they need, it's a perfect match. We are to contribute to the needs of the saints. <sighs> what keeps us from doing that? 
You know the answer to this question. You don't want to answer the question, though, because the answer to the question is, my needs are infinite. Why are my needs infinite? Because I've got a multi-billion dollar advertising industry whose sole job is to convince me that my needs are infinite. They can never totally be satisfied. I don't have any extra. I don't have any extra time. I don't have any extra money. Why not? Because my needs are infinite. That's what we're taught. That's what we believe. (laughs) Now, you're going to ask me, is this the teaching to the rich young ruler who is told to sell everything they have and give to the poor? Maybe it is, and maybe it's not. The easy answer is to let you off the hook. Jesus, when talking with a rich young ruler, acknowledged the fact that that was his thing that was standing between him and accepting Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And Jesus took that one thing and said, there, I'm going to attack that spot. And we might have different one thing. Does that make sense? One thing? Whatever. We might have a different one. That's the easy out. The less easy is we do have infinite needs in our own minds. I know that I do. Hmm. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And it might not just be money. In fact, I would contend it probably shouldn't just be money. Let's look at time. Each of us has the same amount of time as everybody else. But there are others who are, have needs that we can spend our time in meeting those needs. All it takes is time to visit someone who's sick or down or just needs to be encouraged. It takes time to help people meet their daily needs when they're in, uh, not capable of doing it themselves. What does this mean? It means that we acknowledge the fact that the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes take precedent over our own. Now I know what you're feeling right now. Kyle's putting this huge guilt trip and he's got this shovel and he's just dumping it on top of you. Okay, that's what I'm doing. No, I'm not doing it. I'm trying to explain what the scripture expects, tells us that we ought to be doing. And that is helping meet the needs of others. Because, I, I mean, I, it's just very obvious that it's either we're going to help others or we're going to do our own thing. I'm going to do my own thing, which says that I'm Lord of my own life. I'm the captain of my ship, the, whatever the rest of the poem goes. Or, or I'm going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord 
I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to serve the Lord by meeting the needs of the saints. It's pretty simple. The interesting thing is, you may receive no acknowledgement for doing this. There are scriptures that would lead you to believe that you're probably better off if you receive no acknowledgement for doing it. That's an interesting passage, you know, about getting your reward in heaven versus your reward here. Won't go there. (laughs) But that's what we're called to do, to serve and meet the needs of each other. There will come a time when you will need help. There will come a time when you're in a position to give help. And that's just the way life works. There will come a time when a loved one of yours passes away and you need somebody to show up with a meal. And there's other times when you need to be the one who shows up with the meal. It's just, that's the way, the life, that's the way life ought to work. We are to meet the needs of the brothers and sisters in Christ. We could have a whole long discussion about the fact that um, hmm, that probably means that you're aware enough of the needs of the community of Christ that you know what those needs are. I've told you this story before. I love it. It's about my mother. I showed up at a funeral one time, and I sat on the row right behind her. Okay? And she was talking with a very good friend of hers, and I'm sitting there listening to them. And my first thought is, they're gossiping. (laughs) They're talking about all these people. The nerva. We're at a funeral, and they're sitting there gossiping. But you, I listened a little more, and I realized what they were saying. This person has this need. Who's taking care of that? That person is good. This person has a need. Who's taking care of that? I'll do that one. This person has a... They were running through the list. They knew the needs and they were making sure somebody was taking care of them. That's our job. That's your job. That's my job. Now, contributing to the needs of the saints also includes paying those whose full-time work is the ministry. There's other passages that talk about them being worthy of their pay. Okay? You may think if somebody's working for the Lord, they should do it for free. I hate to tell you this. They have to eat too. Their families have to eat too. They should be taken care of. We as a community provide for the needs of the missionaries provide for the needs of the staff of our church, that is meeting the needs of the saints. But don't think that lets you off the hook for helping others yourself. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's a much nicer one. What is hospitality? Come on, somebody tell me. Hmm? Welcoming. Making your home available to missionaries. Making your home available to anyone. I mean, it's trivial sometimes. You know, my kids have a friend over, and it gets close to dinner time, and they come and whisper to me, is it okay if who's it eats? 
And I tell them my rule. If you're in the house and it's dinner time, you eat. You're not going to kick somebody out, right? You are going to be hospitable to those who are at a minimum under your roof. Hospitality really in our minds, and I'm not saying it's a bad connotation, does carry the idea of this is my home, this is what God has given me, and I am making it available to whoever needs it. It can be meals, it can be protection, it can be small group Bible studies, it can be it can be, it can be, it, it means that we use the resources that God has given us to help other people. We are hospitable. It is interesting because if you look at kind of the history of things when, with the advent of air conditioning, it's fascinating, all of a sudden people in the summertime in Texas, all sit inside their houses with their doors and windows locked and shut. Why? It's cool. So you don't go meet your neighbors. You don't show hospitality. You don't sit on the front porch trying to keep from melting and talking with your neighbor while you're doing it. With the advent of mm, television, we seek our entertainment in our own room, in our air condition, with our doors and our windows locked, and we do our own thing, and we're all kind of uh, disjoint from each other. There's a lot of discussion that would go into that, and I'm not going to give it all to you. What does it mean to be hospitable? Find somebody and invite them over to your house for dinner. We'll just start there. That's the easy one. I can make it harder for you. Find someone who is never, ever, ever going to reciprocate and invite them over for dinner. And be happy about it. That is showing hospitality. Showing hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. It's interesting because if you read the commentaries, you know, some people will say some of these verses obviously apply to believers, your relationship with other believers. For example, meet the needs of the saints. It's talking about us and our relationship with each other. Some of these this one, obviously are outside the context of the church to the wider community. And I say obviously because I do have this little thing in the back of my head that says, what are the people that are persecuting you or those inside your church? But that's a whole different problem we'll get to in just a moment. Are there people in your life that are making your life miserable? Do not give me their names. <laughs> are there people who are persecuting you because of your beliefs and your presentation of those beliefs in the community, 
in the place where you live. What is our response to be to those who persecute you? We go online and we write really bad things about them, but we use an alias to do it. (laughs) The cover story of this week's Time magazine is about hate speech on the Internet. That's what we do. We start saying bad things about them behind their back. We start spreading hate and discontent about them. That's what we do. If they're going to persecute me, by golly, I'm going to poke them in the eye. Huh. What does it tell us to do? Bless those. Can we skip to the next verse? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We are nice Christian people. We're probably not going to stand and look at someone in the eye and say, damn you. That would be bad language. We wouldn't do that. But throughout the scripture, we have blessings and we have curses. We have blessings that seek the good of the other. We have curses that seek their demise. Someone is persecuting you, and the scripture tells us we are to bless them. We are to seek their good. This just sounds too alien to even start with. At best, let's ignore them, okay? I'm not going to go in the Internet and say bad things about them. I'm not going to talk about them behind their back. But can't I just ignore them? But you know, that person who is persecuting you is a lost soul made in the image of God who needs to hear the gospel. And who's to say, who's to say that you're returning their evil with good might not be the tool that God uses to soften their hearts. Maybe, maybe not. That's not your problem. That's God's problem. We're all well aware of the idea of going the extra mile. You know where that comes from, right? The Roman soldier had the right to grab you off the street hand you their pack and say, carry this. And you were obligated by law and by the fact that the other guy had the sword to carry that pack exactly one mile. That's what the law required. The Roman Empire built highways around the known world and they had mile markers. We see them on our highways today because the Romans started it. Every mile, there was a mile marker. And you could see that mile marker, and you were getting madder and madder at that Roman soldier because he was occupying your land, he was persecuting your people, and now he was making you carry that pack. And you get to that mile marker, and you throw that pack down, and you look at that Roman soldier, and you say, I did what I had to do, and you walk off. 
Or you walk that mile and you say, how about if I take it another mile? And that Roman soldier starts being befuddled. What is going on here? What's wrong with this guy? 1.1 mile, 1.2 miles, one and a half mile. That Roman soldier finally says, why are you doing this? I've occupied your land. I'm persecuting your people, and I'm making you carry your pack, and you're singing a hymn while you do it. Why? And you turn to that Roman soldier and say, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And guess what? Now you have his attention. I am not saying this is easy. Of anything on the list, this may be one of the hardest. We are to bless those who persecute us. We are to bless them and not curse them. We are to seek their good. But won't they take advantage of us if we do? Probably. Shouldn't I get my revenge? There's one of those to follow in just a moment. The answer is let God take care of that one. Is this easy? No. It's interesting. It is interesting. Look through the scripture. Look through the lives of the apostles. They're in prison. Middle of the night, they're singing hymns. The doors come up, they get ready to leave. And the jailer says, I mean, his life is on the line. His life is on the line if these prisoners are gone in the morning. And he comes in, and the apostle says, oh, we're all here. You know what? That jailer was probably not the nicest person in the world. You know, we want to look at him after the story, and we think he's a nice person. He was a jailer. He beat people for a living. Even if you were still in the cell, wouldn't you hide in the dark corner and pretend you weren't there so he'd go kill himself? Unless you acknowledge the fact that this is a lost soul made in the image of God in need of a Savior, in need of hearing the gospel. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Finally, we get to an easy one. If somebody's happy, be happy with them. If somebody's miserable, share their misery. Question. Your coworker gets the promotion that you wanted. Are you happy? with them or not. Hmm. Not very happy. Adam Smith, yes, the economist Adam Smith, says that we can empathize or sympathize with people's small wins or their huge losses. What that means is if they suffer a little bit, our natural tendency is, oh, that's nothing, buck it up, get over it. And if they win something a little, you know, they win $10 in the lottery, we go, isn't that cool? 
But if somebody wins something big, then jealousy sets in. It really does. You're not any better than I am. Why did you get that promotion? You're not any better than I am. Why did you have that advantage? Why does your child have a child and my child doesn't? Why should I rejoice with you? Why should I be happy when you're getting what I think I deserve and I want it and you don't? What are we doing? We're thinking of ourselves as the center of the universe and we're demanding that God give things to us as we see fit. This one is actually really, really simple. Somebody is suffering. We don't give them a lecture. We don't tell them how they could have fixed it if in their childhood they had made a different decision. We don't explain it. We don't excuse it. We just sit down there in the ashes with Job and we weep. You know, Job's friends did real well for three days. After that, they started asking questions. But at first, they did the right thing. They just sat down and wept. Sometimes that's all we're supposed to do. You know, there are, we had a discussion just a moment ago about meeting the needs of the saints. You know, if somebody's crying because they're hungry and you have money, you go buy them food. That's pretty simple too. But if their heart is broken because of a relationship or because of some persecution, sometimes all we're supposed to do is sit down with them and weep. And when they have something good happen, we rejoice with them. But wait a minute. I need to lecture them why this good thing is not that good. I need to lecture them why this good thing can be abused if you don't do this and if you don't follow my advice. And I want to... No! Remember the analogy. We are a body And if something good happens to part of the body, the rest of the body celebrates. And if something bad happens, the rest of the body mourns with them. It sounds simple, but it's hard because we start thinking about us and what it means to me. Why are you crying over that? Let me tell you my problems. You think your problems are bad. Mine are worse. And yours may be worse. And I trust that somebody will come weep with you. But at this point in time, this person needs someone to rejoice with them or to mourn with them. Go do it. Go do it. Sometimes that's really hard for guys, the mourning half of it. You know, if you win the lottery, I'll tell you, great, go, wonderful, give me a share of it. But you know, if you're having a tough time, it may be contagious. No. All we're called to do at times, at times, because there are times when we are to meet the needs. But at times, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Hmm. 
Well, we made it five verses. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your instructions to us. Thank you for the words that you've given us. I pray, Lord, that we, that we would rejoice in the hope that you've given us, that we would acknowledge the fact that when difficult times come, you are in control. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.